the Human Subject, a podcast about the future of clinical research. And if clinical research is the future of bioscience and health, then these discussions are about the future of the future. I'm Jeff Smith, a student of research with a background in law and public policy. My cohort, Eric Smith, no relation, comes from a long career working in clinical research policy and infrastructure and healthcare. Eric, what are we talking about today? Thanks, Jeff. For many of us, when we think about clinical research, we think about labs, research teams, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera. However, trials have a key partner that's sometimes given too little attention and ironically, it's probably the most important member of the team. That's the, the trial subject or participant. To many of the participants in trials, the study represents so much more than just the next steps in advancing healthcare. These studies can represent hope for new treatments, relief from their current suffering. They represent a chance to be recognized and included in the future of medicine. Yet so many trials are designed with little consideration from the community perspective. So today we're gonna to be exploring some of the challenges participants and broader communities face when looking to be a part of trials from access and continuity of care to personalized clinical research and diverse community engagement. Joining us in this conversation is someone who has experienced many of these issues from both a personal and a professional perspective, Rochelle Williams-Belazaire. Rochelle Williams-Belazaire is currently Assistant Director of Research Collaboration, Precision Oncology for a large American health system. Over a decade of experience in clinical research, including clinical trial operations, design, strategic partnerships in the research space. Rochelle's advocate for health and care works hard on finding solutions to reduce and address health disparities among minority, marginalized, underrepresented communities. Much of the origin of clinical research ethics is based in oppression and how do we resolve that oppression. We'll be getting into that today. Rochelle, welcome and thanks for spending this time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start off with this. I want to start off with nomenclature. You like participant, patient, subject, human being. How do you like to refer to the people who have actually signed up with informed consent to do trials? Yeah, so um, before, there, there are different phases. So before a patient comes on to a clinical trial, they are a person, they are a human being. And so they should be regarded as such. And they're, all, they're gonna remain a human being and a person throughout the clinical trial. When they come onto a clinical trial, we will refer to them as a participant. So the different documents or things of that nature, it's participant. Um, we try to avoid using the word subject. When was the switch? When was, because even in materials that I'll read that aren't that long, subject will be the preferred word. At what point did the nomenclature start to shift? Uh, I think it may have even been before my time fully engaged in clinical research and, and getting into that era of expertise. But I just know, um, along with the culture that was shifting across the world and in terms of America as well, that there was a need to change the language. And so there was this dramatic shift in terms of participant. It wasn't a massive announcement or anything of that nature, but the um, National Cancer Institute, uh, National Institutes of Health, um, FDA, these different entities, these regulatory bodies that oversee clinical research, you know, provide guidance documents regularly. And so they provided the guidance documents in terms of saying, please utilize participant as opposed to saying subject. And I'm, don't quote me on this, I'm not positive, but I do believe subject, that terminology does uh, go back to maybe some experiments and procedures that were done in European countries and the 
findings and language that came out of that was to, to make the shift from subject to say participant. I think another thing that we should consider though is this concept of the informed patient. So maybe around the two early 2000s, we had this movement of informed medical decision-making. And the idea behind that was to shift the conversation where historically you as a patient, me, myself, you all, we will go to our doctor's office and we hear what our doctor, our clinician, our you know, clinical team tells us and, and we go home and we follow those orders. And that's kind of how it went. Well, then there was this shift to say, but you are a person and you know your body the best. You can actually feel it. You can sense it, right? You have those kind of gut feelings. And so we have to bring that to the conversation. So then there's this shift to say, no, we need to make informed medical decision-making where we provide the tools and the resources so a person can advocate for themselves. And it's a team, a team of your doctor and yourself saying, this is how we need to approach my condition. Really, I really like the way, the way that you described that, Rochelle. And I, you know, I know that for me, one of the first times I was engaged in this conversation um, was a little bit different. It was about the terminology patient when using clinical trials. And it occurs to me that um, obviously, I think most of us who work in the field know we're not supposed to say patient because that implies a therapeutic uh, benefit that may or may not be there for the participant. But it occurs to me that patient is also uh, kind of mired in this, in this old dynamic of you know, a doctor-patient relationship is not necessarily seen as an equal peer-to-peer -peer relationship, whereas participant really is seen as a part of the team. So, you know, I think it's, it's interesting that this has been such a big issue, but I think it's a really good sign uh, for where we're heading. I absolutely agree with that, right? Because you want to be able to feel a part of it. You want to participate in your care. So it makes sense. I think it's the right move. Absolutely. <laughs> so Rochelle, getting into phase one of our conversation, we like to get to know our guests a little bit and talk about the origins of how people get into this field. What is your origin story? Can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in, in the clinical research field? Sure. So um, I am an immigrant from Jamaica. Um, so we, my family, we moved to Boston, Massachusetts. And I think, you know, this is definitely retrospective, but I think um, kind of just growing up in Boston and um, noticing the different health systems. There isn't, right? So you can already see that there's these major kind of general hospitals and then there's these smaller community clinics. And so I was always very observant of that and intrigued by that. And that continued. I also had just a strong interest in health in general. So that stayed with me throughout my studies in high school and in college. Well, of course you graduate from college, you need to find gainful employment. And so, you know, there are major cancer centers and hospitals in Boston. And I just applied for different jobs. You know, clinical research coordinator was definitely a position that stood out to me. And I was told if you want to consider medical school or maybe you don't want to go to medical school and you want to go to the research route, this is a really good entry level position to, to feel that out. And so I took a position as a clinical research coordinator and I had absolutely amazing mentors, um, physicians that I was able to work with. And many of them would stay kind of focused on the clinical side, but then a number of them would integrate the research with the clinical side. Uh, many uh, principal investigators, right? Clinical investigators. So it really started from there and I just had a massive passion for it. And I noticed the need, um, not only on the research side, but creating that connection with the patient. So 
my very first job was to be the coordinator that would go into the patient room and introduce them to a clinical trial opportunity and talk through it with them along with their provider and, and get their consent. So it's very much learning the world of a patient navigator and what that experience is like and how important it is. And so it really just grew from there. And it was very quick for me after about a year or so, I realized not medical school, this is the place that I want to be in, in terms of understanding uh, cancer, understanding the research, but somehow having some sort of impact on the patient side of things and what they're going through. So often we talk to folks about their origins and there is a professional objective. Want to get to med school, want to, you know, get a gig somewhere. And very often, there's also a personal story. It also connects with one's life. Uh, my own story, which I've told the brief version of another time, was my mom at a young age getting, uh, when I was very young, when I was a sophomore in high school, getting diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and us not having health insurance and shopping around for clinical trials. Uh, Eric speaks glowingly of you behind your back and it has talked, it told me a little bit about your own uh your own personal experience, but rather than me telling it, why don't you share whatever you want and, and to what degree it intersects with how you've spent your career? Right. So um, I've been in the clinical research field for some time, focused on clinical trial operations, clinical trial design, and more recently in the precision oncology space. And, you know, I can't, it's just very interesting how life works out where there's just more recently been this massive um, clash between my professional and my personal life. And so um, I have two boys, my youngest, um, he's now two years old uh, and his newborn screening, they conduct um, a sickle cell disease test. And so um, my son was diagnosed with sickle cell disease and long story shorter to kind of describe it, sickle cell disease um, definitely is a blood disorder. It is considered a fatal blood disorder. And the idea behind it is that um, there's a shift or a change in your red blood cells. So um, your, your blood cells will actually change in shape and they will change to the shape of a sickle. And they also get a very sticky kind of a feel to them. So they will bind and kind of stick together. And when you think about your blood flow, that's obviously going to make it very difficult. And so what you'll find is, you know, kind of just layman terms is as your blood flows, it can actually just get stuck because they are, the red blood cells are now clumped together and, you know, many sickle shaped blood cells clumped together. And so it becomes stuck. So if you are lacking in appropriate blood flow or getting oxygen to all your organs and body parts that you need to, that can become fatal. You can, you know, have a stroke and there's organ failures of different kinds. So Isaiah has been diagnosed with sickle cell disease. There are a number of different clinical trials that are out there. There's been amazing advancement in terms of sickle cell disease. Um, so I'm very impressed by that. But what really brought the two worlds together is now I'm on that other side. I'm not that person that's at the desk, that's writing these trials, looking up the concept, going to the different forums, understanding the different pathway inhibitors and mutation. I'm on the other side. I'm now a mom. And it's even harder because it's not like I'm looking for treatment for myself. I'm responsible for this whole other person and all the decisions that uh, his father and I, we make today 
can impact him in the future. So that becomes very challenging, right? That's a huge tall order just as a parent alone, but now you add this next layer. So that can become very difficult. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm reading the research, I'm scrambling through, I'm going and trying to learn about the different clinical trial opportunities that are available for him. And it becomes challenging because the trials maybe that you want are not available in the area that you live. So that becomes a challenge. And it's something, a pattern that I've noticed in terms of clinical research um, over the years. And now it's personally impacting me, right? Where we're talking about getting access to clinical trials. If we have these novel, amazing treatment options that are out there, but not everyone can benefit from it, then, then, then what's the point and what are we doing and how are we really benefiting society and benefiting one another? So it's just this very interesting time and space where oh, you have to kind of wear this mom emotional hat in addition to keeping in all that textbook knowledge and, and try to find the best treatment options for Isaiah. And I'm very grateful and happy to say that there is now an FDA approved cure for sickle cell disease but it does require a bone marrow transplant. And so when you add that factor in, you have to find a match, right? So that can donate those bone marrow cells. And so even though there is a cure for it, can everyone actually benefit from the cure? Now Isaiah can, because his older brother is a perfect match for him. So I'm very lucky in that regard. But when I talk about like that advocacy work and ensuring that in my lifetime, I'm doing something to give back. It, this is not enough. We're, we're going to be okay. But there are so many people out there that are not as fortunate. And so it doesn't mean that I can just say, okay, I'm all set. You have to keep going and, and, and making sure that as many people can get the same kind of resources too. Michelle, do you feel like this new perspective, uh, newer perspective for you being um, a mother has given you a, a difference, a different perspective in how you do your work. I mean, I know you've talked about how it's, it's newer to you and you're coming to this, but how has that shifted um, your perspective on how clinical research operates within the industry? I have to say I am a bit of a lush. <laughs> so, I mean, even from my, I think that was kind of one of the deciding factors about do I want to pursue a career as a physician? No, because I break up, I connect with the patient um, that's in the room so aggressively that I said, this is an emotional roller coaster that I am not capable of. So I've, I've always been a lush and I've always kept that in mind. So even going about my work, you know, when you're operationalizing clinical trial, right, Eric, you want to think about that trial, you want to think about that person that's on the other end that's getting that consent form, and you kind of map out literally from the, the moment they sign a consent every single day, every single procedure from that all the way through the end. So you're always thinking about a human being on the other side. So we, we keep that in mind. I will simply say though, Isaiah has inspired me to be just a lot more passionate. So whereas before it's, well, let me read this article. Well, let me go to this symposium. Sure, I'd love to volunteer. Now going through it as a mom, I'm inspired to just be a little bit more aggressive. And I understand those that are in the field already doing amazing work to try and, you know, dispel health disparities, the passion behind it. And I fully understand and really am fully committed. And it's no longer a matter of like, oh, when I find time, you just have to find time because these are events and situations that are impacting everyone every single day. So it just puts it 
really in the forefront for me. Use the word lush. Did I hear that word right? L-U-S-H? I know two definitions. I know two uses of that word. One use is if I've got lots of plants. The other is if I'm drunk all the time. Okay. I don't think you meant either thing. No. <laughs> I'm more of a, I guess we could describe it as um, I'm very in tune to others' emotions and, and to what they're going through and what they're experiencing. And that's why you and drink to excess to often. Yeah, and I take it to heart a lot. <laughs> so none of those definitions. Okay. That you describe. <laughs> it, 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 there, there might not be a single disease that is a better illustrator or entry point to a discussion about the intersection of morality, equality, ethics, clinical research, the history of clinical research, what diseases have been prioritized or deprioritized based on social values, social priorities, economic uh, economic priorities, and frankly, oppression. It might be the best. Feel free to push back on, feel free to push back on that. But as you come to grips with this, now coming from a place of, to some degree, power and expertise, right? You're not a parent only asking questions of a doctor. You also have answers that some doctors might not have, right? You, you come from a place of sort of expertise. Say more about how you have seen that and perhaps either the bad news of what we're up against in terms of changing culture within clinical research or the good news about progress that has been made or being made. Right. I would agree with you if you're referring to sickle cell disease of being a, a great place to explore. So let's think about it. Sickle cell disease mostly impacts those of African descent, um, Hispanic descent, um, and Southeast Asia, if I'm correct. So you're thinking about very underserved, marginalized populations and communities, and that's across the world. So the advancement in sickle cell disease that's happening right now is wonderful. Do I believe that we're behind the times on it? Absolutely. And do I think that some of that has to do with the fact that it's underserved, marginalized communities? Absolutely. So when we think about even as we work on the advocacy, as we try to support and create resources for patients, some of them are, the solutions are just so simple. Or, or you find that they're lacking in certain procedures or processes that are widely available in any other disease group. So why, why is that not the case for sickle cell disease? And we know the answer why, right? So I would agree with you on that. Now, I think what we're benefiting from is some of the technology that's out there. If you look at gene therapy and CAR-T, things of that nature, well, sickle cell disease is just, is just a great place to explore that. So the disease, the community is benefiting from that, that there's now this interest in this technology. So sure, let's do it, right? Um, I think there's also been a shift in conversation on a global and national level in terms of addressing health disparities. So now we have the National Cancer Institute where they are providing different funding and grants, but they're calling out key criteria where they're saying you must identify how you are contributing or how your project will help to benefit all patients, how you will break down health disparities with this research project. What are you going to do to address that? What are you going to do to expand your catchment area? How do I know that this will be a diverse population? And they're calling that out in their grants and, and they're, it's a good effort and it's a good approach because now people are mandated to address this. You know, one of the issues you're talking about is really access, right? When you talk about diverse communities, there's also rural communities 
being one of the underserved communities as well. And with sickle cell, it pops to mind that that is on a global scale, that is very much a rural versus urban or a, or a um, more developed versus developing issue. How do you see that the access is changing from a global perspective? Do you think that these new technologies, so obviously we have the, the gene therapy technologies that are probably not expanding that, but do you think there are new technologies since we're in the communication age, we're in the age of the internet, that will start to crack open those communities and allow them the same access to, to trials and healthcare that other areas have? I would hope so. I can't speak on it too much. And we see different things in social media and in the research environment where we're taking advantage of technology, just as you say, Eric, and we're looking at that virtual space. I think COVID-19 obviously is horrible that we've all gone through that, but we also have to take into consideration what are the lessons that are learned. And so when we think about, say, for instance, cancer, because that's just my field of research and interest, Many things went on hold with the pandemic. We weren't able to go out and shop and eat and do all these different things, but health and diseases, they did not go on hold. They continued and we had to come up as a health community with solutions and how we're going to continue to care for our patients despite the social distancing restrictions that are also very important. So I think we've learned quite a bit about the pandemic, the ability for telemedicine, do we always have to go into the clinician's office to get the appropriate care and service right. that yeah. we need? Can that happen virtually? And then we reserve those in-person visits for when it's truly you know, necessary and needed. I think the other thing we have to take into consideration, though, is looking at, and, and it's hard to do, it's hard to look at a disease or a condition that you don't have and consider it, you know, and, and the fact that not everyone has access to all those resources and look at it as like, it's also your problem. But if we're going to grow as a society, um, as a nation, we have to be good neighbors and we have to think about one another. So I think we, for a number of years, we've been going about trying to solve that problem the wrong way, where we're putting a lot of pressure and responsibility on ourselves, kind of like in academia, you know, in higher education, in already in that research environment to solve the problem for the underserved communities. And we're trying to say, well, how do we do this? Well, we can't get there. We can't be there all the time. And to provide all these resources is going to be very difficult. What if we took the different approach, more of a public health approach, where we are providing the community, first you listen to the community, what are their needs? And let's not assume that every community's needs are going to be the same just because of their geographic or demographic makeup, what's one. Two, all the responsibility doesn't fall on us. And let's not assume that the community does not wanna be engaged. And so what are those resources that we can provide to the community so they can advocate for themselves? Not everything again has to be on a major hospital campus or you know, in a clinician's office. And again, is it a matter of, I've learned at least for myself, even with sickle cell disease, <clears throat> lifestyle, the way that you eat, the way that you go about things can really um, protect you and prevent you from having certain pain crises that can occur with sickle cell disease or, or different things. And so what are those kind of tools and resources that the community can just promote for themselves to improve their health? Um, and then we bring in the experts when needed. And I think there's a lot to learn here. Each time we like to try to get to root cause of some degree, as we think about access to research, access to care, 
and access to clinical trials specifically, what do you see as the most important root barriers to that access? Um, I think much of it has to do definitely in the planning stage and that we're not incorporating the key, all the key stakeholders in, at the table when we're planning things. It's usually a matter of the clinical investigator you know, researchers coming up with their study design, their objectives, whatever hypothesis that they want to solve, and how they go forward about doing it, and what is the target population and sample size and power and, and things of that nature. But we don't include the key stakeholders from the um, participants, right? Or if we want to say patient population, right? So we don't include them to the table. They're not brought into the discussion, and they have to be, because the way that we consider going about the research, they when we then go to implement it, we find that we're not recruiting the number of participants that we hoped for, or we're noticing that there are a number of barriers. There, there are many other things that can be involved here, and so I think if we really want to address this, everyone needs to be at the table. Many health systems, institutions have implemented what they termed patient advocates. Patient advocates at times also have that same scientific expertise, but they consider themselves a patient of that health institution. So they should be brought to the table to give their feedback to say, you might want to consider this or you might want to consider that because we're not on the clinical trial. So we're not going through the same experience that they are. And we can't just assume. So you know, with, when we consider patient advocates, and I, along with, with you, I've seen this rise in patient advocates in design, which I think is a fantastic idea. But you brought up something earlier where you said not all underserved communities are the same. This is a topic that I've had recently uh, in a philosophical discussion group that I'm a part of, um, where people are trying to discuss uh, complex solutions. And they say, well, for rural communities, you need to reach them this way. But the issue comes up that not all rural communities are the same. Not all patient advocates are the same. Not all patients are the same. So what the problem that I, I, I have or have seen with the current patient advocate model is they'll bring in one or two patient advocates to speak for the entire population when the true patient population is massively complex. Do you see a solution to that? How do we handle that level of complexity um, with the patient advocate model? So I think, you know, first, at least having a patient advocate is absolutely the very first step, but we have to take, just stop and take into consideration. So there are some diseases that we know a lot about. We've learned a great deal about that disease. And so having a patient advocate and having um, that perspective at the table is going to be important. I think taking into consideration, just look at your community. So is one patient advocate going to be enough? And the only way you can look at your community, I, I really do feel like, sure, we can just pull up that demographic profile and, and get a sense. But if you're not just actually engaging with the community, you really don't have a strong sense. Again, your design is being fully operated by assumption. So if you really want something to work, if you really want to benefit people, how do you not have them at the table? Someone from the community at the table. So sometimes maybe, as you say, our patient advocate is not enough. Are they, maybe they're an advocate because they've gone, they have this disease, they've gone through clinical trial, are they part of that community? So you need the community stakeholders to the conversation as well. What are the best practices you've seen in patient advocates or patient advocate 
groups that others should adopt or any obvious mistakes you see made that people could quit real easy? So I've only recently had the opportunity to engage in conversations with patient advocates, maybe over the last year or so. So I wouldn't feel like I am anything remotely of a subject matter expert in that space. My only suggestion or advice for it would be to listen. So we have patient advocates to the table, make sure that they're representing your community and we're listening and we hold ourselves accountable. So the suggestions that they provide, what are we doing to follow through on that? So Rochelle, previously before the interview today, you and I had had a conversation about continuity of care and that being an important uh, issue as well. Can you give us a little bit more on that and tell us why continuity of care is important and how it relates to this issue? Sure. I mean, if we think about it, it, it's very important if you if you really want to treat someone, if you, if you really want to take care, let's take let's take it out of like even the patient perspective, for example. Let's think about your car, right? And you have to do regular maintenance and care for your car. So you are going to bring your car to the same mechanic or body shop or service center every time because they have the full history on your car. If you bring it to another, it's hopefully just because you were referred to that other body shop from your your regular mechanic, but you want a home. You want a place where you feel comfortable that someone just fully, completely understands your car. And I feel I can even speak for myself now as a patient. I don't want to have to move around from this physician to this clinician, to this nurse, to this nurse practitioner. I want someone who just understands me and knows who I am and knows my history. I think that's really important in terms of healthcare. You want to have that continuity of care. So there's going to be, you want to go through the kind of preventative care, make sure that you're healthy. We don't want to get sick. So what are those different things that we can do in consideration of our lifestyle, our cultures, our communities that we live in, that we can implement those day-to-day kind of tasks or activities to keep us healthy. If we get to a point that we do become sick, we want to have that same individual who knows our lifestyle from before to make the best personalized approach to our care. And then hopefully you'll overcome that illness. And then it's not just checking in and making sure everything's up to date, continuing with the preventative care that was from before. You want to have that same individual involved. If it's chopped up and you're moving from system to system to clinician to clinician, it's very hard to map that out. And no matter how much of an informed patient that a person is or how engaged you are in your personal health, to go through that long history and reintroduce yourself and your body every single time, that's exhausting. We have a segment called the crystal ball. And what you just said, Rochelle, could also serve as a segue. If clinical research is the future of medicine, these conversations about the future of clinical research, the future of the future, then looking into that future is kind of the point. And I'm going to ask you to look into the future in a moment. I want to go back in the conversation about telemedicine, which also has some intersection with potentially continuity of care, that if you start changing doctors, start changing hospital, if you have a uh, if you have an encrypted uh, personal digital health record, then you can have continuity even if, you, even if your car is being taken to a different auto body shop, at least they can plug it into the terminal and find out what's happened recently. Do you see telemedicine as a meaningful step forward to greater equity in care and research? Do you see telemedicine as an additional potential digital barrier for folks who don't have access to the same tools? 
or is it both? And if it's both, how do we manage its bothness? I think telemedicine can help, but I do not believe that is the solution. So if you are a patient and you are able to go, you, for whatever reason, have to shift your care right to another health system. Maybe there is a, a surgeon that you should see, the best surgeon out there for your condition or whatever the case may be. They may have your full medical record and they have all that information. I think it's wonderful, you know, the platform that telemedicine provides for that. But if there's no report, this doesn't mean anything. There, there's a very key element to all this. And, and again, having a manual on a person and what they've gone through in their medical history is just one very small part of the solution. You have to come up with how do you then also build that rapport so that you can best benefit them. If we think about even access to understanding, you know, the resources and, and things that are available, we could send emails, we could have these Zoom meetings. We're seeing a lot of them, right? Where we're hearing from different clinicians. So I think there's a lot of opportunity now where you can log into a free webinar or symposium and learn from someone that's at the top of the game in terms of research or treating a disease or preventing a disease. And that's wonderful that we get to hear them. But the key to all of that is the engagement factor. And so we're able to pose those questions and have our questions answered. But if we just have a bunch of information and knowledge pushed on to us, there's still that missing part of how do I apply it to me? How do I apply it to my personal life? And so I think that's what's really key to all of this to say, this is great that I should be eating these foods or I should be doing these different things or, you know, but I don't have access to these foods or, you know, my terrain doesn't grow these kind of foods or whatever the case may be, right? So I think telemedicine plays an incredible role. It will connect us to um, more providers than we normally would have access to. And that is very important. And I even personally have benefited from that, right? Second opinions, you're usually having to get on a flight and fly somewhere and, and meet with everyone. So the fact that telemedicine can do that is profound and we need to give it as massive credit for that. But as long as that is coming along with the concept of informed patient providing the resources and tools so patients can advocate for themselves and there's important engagement. You're, you're really hitting on a lot of um, questions that bring to mind precision medicine, which isn't surprising because you work in precision oncology. <laughs> I've asked this question of a couple of our guests so far, and I'm curious what your unique take is on how we take the principles of precision medicine and tailoring our care to an individual's circumstances in a more comprehensive way. How do we move that into the clinical research space? How do you do trials with precision medicine in mind rather than what, what is so often done where they will discard data because it doesn't apply to more than 3%? How do we start integrating that so that we have more robust data for precision clinical research? So precision medicine is a complex field as it is, right? Because you're trying the ultimate goal, and we have a long way to go, is to provide personalized care for patients. And to a certain extent, we're able to do that because we're looking at the gene mutations and things of that nature to say, this is going to be the treatment option that's best going to benefit you. But you bring up an excellent point, Eric, of the sample size and power and statistics and the struggle with N of one in precision medicine because you're trying to benefit each individual patient. So 
it, it is important and it is something to take into consideration for sure. And it's going to be a major challenge in the field. But I think what precision medicine is teaching us the most is how important it is to look at the entire individual. We're not just going to run kind of high level or blood tests or things of that nature. We have to take it a step further and get to know them. And then to your point, even outside of the whole tissue and blood landscape, there are these other confounding factors that have to be taken into consideration in terms of a person's health. So all of that comes to mind. It is a massive challenge and I absolutely have no solution, but I think the best strategy and approach is engaging with that patient and getting to know them. And, and I think precision medicine has been so successful and it seems like such a promising field because we are taking it that next step further and getting to know the patient. Now, granted, it's on a genomics level, but <laughs> we are getting to know the patient. <laughs> what else needs to be figured out to move towards truly, uh, at least more, I don't know if truly personalized is ever a full destination, but what, something we'd characterize as truly personalized uh, healthcare, truly precision medicine, uh, and how, if you were going to prioritize those folks working clinical trials what would be the most important stuff they need to do to move in that direction? To move in the direction in of, the direction of more personalized health. Well, I think we're starting to see it already, right? We're we're seeing many clinicians, many members on the clinical team taking the time. If you think about even just the different tests that are normally run, right? We're seeing a shift in that where people are saying, "Well, normally I'd run this test, but I'm actually going to order." this more deep dive of a test to learn more about you. Now, of course, with that comes payment for these different tests. And so with the advancement in precision medicine and personalized medicine, we have to think about insurance. We have to think about the different insurance formularies and a call on the insurance industry. And I know that they're probably trying to explore this as well, but you, you have to take this into consideration what we're learning, the deep knowledge that we're learning on patients. And this is not going to be information that's been published. You cannot pull a peer-reviewed medical journal to back up your reasoning for why this patient needs to get this medication and why the insurance company needs to approve it, which is what a lot of formulary is built off of, right? This is caught off the press, groundbreaking knowledge on this patient, but we know this is the right treatment to benefit them. And so collaborating or working with the insurance industry to solve this problem, because it's not easy. It's going to be challenging once we are able to identify the best treatment option, the next challenge is now how do we get it to the patient <laughs> without burdening them more than what they're already going through in terms of their condition. So what does the insurance industry need to do? How do you suggest navigating that, right? If it's not them just looking at the New England Journal of Medicine and building a formulary list off of published articles, but instead doing blank. What's the blank? Um, a deep dive. <laughs> I feel like that's always going to be my answer. Yeah, who's deep dive? Who's deep yeah. dive? Deep dive into so what? I'm, How is it ratified? And I'm not, and I'm part of, not part of the insurance industry, but I'm already starting to notice some shifts in conversations and their approaches to medical review. So there are a number of medical doctors, you know, on different positions and requirements for insurance companies. And so they are coming back and they are approving treatment recommendations that are very, very novel. A lot of this also has to do that we're in a very early stage of precision medicine. It's going to grow with time. So 
I think we're starting to notice a shave change and that's very promising, but I think it will require um, more of a deep dive on the data, reviewing decision trees. How do we go about doing this? Because it, it, it's changing. The technology is forcing us to change. And I'm sure the insurance company is also saying, and we're obligated to change because we want to take care of these patients as well. And so what will we see from that? We're going to see petitions or revisions of different bills and legislator that have major influences on the different formularies that we're starting to see around the country. And how do you make sure in that, or is there a risk that as there is a push on the insurance industry towards greater personalization and precision, that that might also overlap with the impacting rates based on the social determinants of health that a person has experienced based on their own, uh, their own biomarkers, based on their own genetics, and that all of a sudden people are paying different insurance rates because we know a lot more information. Maybe they're getting better care. Maybe they're not. You already gave the disclaimer that you don't work in the insurance industry, but I'm wondering if you've thought about it yet. I have not. So you raise an excellent point. What will that rate change look like? Will there be? It's, it's an excellent point. If I can chime in on this, I think that the insurance industry, sure, it's a, it, from one perspective, it's, it's a part of the healthcare industry. From another perspective, it's the financial industry. And insurance, it's, the insurance industry adapts in different ways to different things. One of those things is legislation, as you bring up, Rochelle, and regulations. One is their um, inherent responsibility to the healthcare of the community as a whole. And then another is just there's a, I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that a lot of health of the insurance industry shifts based upon financial incentive. So personalized medicine, just like anything else that is an up and coming innovation in healthcare, has to prove that it adds value before insurance will buy into it, I think. And I think that there's a lot of evidence that it does add value. But we need to look at, does it make sense to do the gene typing, to do the personalized patient photograph, shall, shall we say, before and do all those testing before we get to the therapeutic areas. If it does, if we can show that, hey, yeah, it cost us $2,000 to do some genotyping up front, but that $2,000 actually bought us out of the, you know, we dropped the, the waste in treatment 20, from 20% down to 10%, then I think insurance will say, wow, we need to do this, this uh, genotyping up front, for example. So I think we have to consider um, that financial aspect when we talk about insurance. And I also think there's other data to be valued there. So when we talk about having clinical trials happening around this, I think, you know, looking at trials from a sponsor's perspective as more than just the key endpoints that you're typically and traditionally pulling out of the trial, looking at it as every piece of data that we're collecting, whether we think it's valuable or not, should be stored somewhere and needs to be reviewed regularly. That extra data mining has a lot of value as well. Absolutely. You know, I, I only know of one study that's even um, taken the, the time to review this only because it's a challenging subject matter, but in terms of the pricing, right? And so when you think about precision medicine and the novel treatment combinations that are coming out of that, the drugs that may be part of that treatment combination can be very expensive as opposed to what is being provided right now in terms of standards of care. And so what does that look like? And I think one thing we should probably take into consideration is while it may be pricier, if it can truly benefit the patient and cure them from a condition or put them into remission for whatever condition that they have, 
and then compare it to someone that's receiving the standard of care. It's not necessarily personalized. It's not really hitting the targets or parts of their disease that it really needs to hit. And so they're on this and maybe it's maintaining them, but they're on this regimen for a very, very long period of time. Maybe they'll switch over to another regimen for a very long period of time. What is the price comparison? And what does that add to Exactly. Right. The holistic cost of healthcare thing needs to be considered. And you brought up CAR T. CAR T, in my head, I can't think of anything that is more personalized than CAR T. I mean, what can be more personalized than actually taking cells from the, the patient, modifying them, and, and re injecting them? It's incredibly expensive. This is the big barrier with CAR T right now. But I think that you're hitting on exactly how CAR T needs to be considered to be adopted. Yeah, it might cost $300,000 for the therapy. But what is the overall cost when you look downstream 10 years for someone who maybe goes in remission for their cancer and then goes on some sort of adjuvant therapy, but then has a recurrence? You know, we need to look at that in a more holistic way. I agree. We have a segment we call the Hydra. Science is the beast that will never be defeated. As we address one head, others will sprout. Fortunately, it's a Hydra that can offer beneficence. Rochelle, what do you think has been the biggest progress in clinical research over the past, let's say, 10 years? I think our data sharing capabilities has been uh, massive. We've learned quite a bit in our own small cohorts in terms of what we're learning about different diseases and, and patient populations, but the ability to share the data and to collaborate so we can learn even more is extremely impressive, and, and it's the right direction and where we need to go. So I think that has brought forth a lot of the new technology that we're seeing. Collaboration clinical research is integral and, and so important. So the data sharing, data sharing amongst researchers, but I also find that there are now, every day we're seeing new approaches and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of access. So, and that virtual space and what we're able to share with just the general population so I think having Zoom or, you know, Citrix, all these different kind of social media platforms as well, we're able to share a lot of information. So I think data sharing is integral and important, not only amongst the research community, but also for the general population that just wants to learn more. So on the theme of the Hydra, <laughs> I think this is a perfect example. Data sharing is something that we are now able to address in ways we've never addressed before. But there are new challenges, no doubt, that sprout from that. What challenges have you seen or can you imagine that will come from more free sharing of data? So, of course, what comes with data sharing is the legal component of it. And does everyone want their data to be shared? So we have to take into consideration different mandates, legislation, such as HIPAA, you know, and thinking about protected health information. So when we're doing data sharing, we want to make sure that it's to benefit of the community. And part of that is also ensuring that we are maintaining as much privacy in terms of patient information that we can. Yes, that a lot of the research we have is in kind of the animal space, but 
a majority of it. And, and if, we're, if we're going to go about treating diseases for the human population, you have to have clinical trials, you have to have human participants, and that's their information. And it doesn't change. The ownership doesn't change simply because we're now storing it in our different data warehouses. So that is going to be a challenge um, in terms of protecting the patient, and that should be foremost on our list. The second one, of course, is the exciting space in terms of clinical research is because of the competition. It invigorates, it energizes, and inspires people to try the next thing. And so data sharing will always be complicated because we want to share, we want to collaborate with others, but we don't want others to take our ideas and our concepts and run with it because they have better technology than we do to complete the project. So that will always be there. <laughs> Who's doing the best thinking or even anybody you're aware of doing good thinking on the ethics, law, and policy around data sharing? I mean, as we think about how information technology has been monetized over particularly about the last 10 years, a little bit more, but let's call it 10 years, harvesting data has been the primary monetization. That's how like Facebook makes money because it knows exactly what a collared shirt to sell me once April comes, okay? Uh, and there is huge value in harvesting data and then figuring out how to share that data, not only value for the patient to get precision healthcare, but also for precision insert one's activity. Mm-hmm. It's an enormous thing. I'm not breaking new ground by identifying how important it is, but at least we should dwell on that. Offer whatever thoughts you want, but I'm at least curious if anybody's doing really good thinking and writing about this that, you know, our listeners should care about. I will not be able to say who's at the forefront in terms of data sharing and overseeing that. I am very fortunate to have a number of experts in this field and leading major national projects. So I typically lean to them for the advisement and guidance, but I always bring it back to the National Cancer Institute. They have several arms, and I know that data sharing is a major component for them. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they do have a national project where they are, you know, working with many academic and health institutions in terms of data sharing, you know, data governance, and really exploring that area and trying to develop the guidance policies. I think you're right on. I think the government is taking a forefront effort on this, but I think the challenge that the industry has always had, something the government has tried to address many times, is data standardization. It's very difficult to share data when it's not standardized. We have had standardization protocols that have been pushed out to our healthcare providers and healthcare institutions Uh, with meaningful use in the Obama era, with new protocols for standardized language like DICOM. All of that stuff is good. But unfortunately, the government (laughs) is not typically the best engine of innovation. And I think what we're eventually going to need is somebody in industry to come in and see the profit in revolutionizing this area. We're very interested in seeing who that might be. I'm with you. I couldn't guess who that is. I want to talk to those people for sure when, when we find out who they are. We have a segment called Poison in the Well. On the human subject, we look at what's messing with data, what's messing with science, what might be poisoning the well. We started off on a topic that we see. I mean, heck, the first project I did, first legal project I did in this field was on inclusion of women and minorities in phase three clinical studies. And that was decades ago, a long time ago. And it is not a problem that has been solved. There have been lots of work, people taking some 
meaningful effort to address it. But let's just say that equity, let's assume for discussion's sake that equity is one of the things or the lack of it is one of the things that's poisoning the well. Any examples you want to offer that help illustrate that or optimism you have of who's working on it, what's happening to address it? Well, as I mentioned, there are a number of the grant opportunities that are available. They're forcing many researchers and investigators to look into this, where they're saying you have to have recruitment approach that takes equity in consideration and ensuring that this opportunity is available to as many as possible. It's a difficult question for me to answer. I mean, again, I think the patient advocate is the right approach. I think that's important and uh, incorporating them in the very beginning of the clinical trial design. I think another space that we need to absolutely explore when we think about equity, in order to address equity, we have to take in many perspectives. And in order to bring in many perspectives, we should have individuals involved in the research on all levels with, that are bringing different perspectives to the table. So we talk a lot about the um, participants and the participant population. And so there should be diversity and different perspectives involved there. There should be also diversity in terms of the actual clinical research that's being conducted. So again, it's wonderful all of the attention that's being put into the sickle cell disease space now, but that was not always the case. And I'm sure there are probably other diseases that could benefit from focus and attention in looking into the research and cures for those. Um, but then also in terms of our researchers, we need to have different perspectives at the table that are going to bring up an idea or thought or a potential barrier that we just never would have considered because it's not impacting us personally. And, and we just have to bring honest and real and know that when we are looking at any task that we are going about, we're looking at it from our perspective. And so it's from our lifestyle, it's from our life experiences. So if we haven't experienced something else, it's going to be very hard for us to take it in consideration, no matter how hard we try. And we can create those different mantras and mandates and policies to remind ourselves, but we have to have different perspectives at the table as well. After we do our initial investigation, we move to the phase four, which is asking a little more about what you're dealing with, what our guest is up against, what our guest is learning. Rochelle, what's something you're learning? I don't have much time for uh, just like free reading just because as a mom and I have two little boys. So, okay, I can give you, you know, I will say this. We are in a very challenging time. Um, I'm going to show this. I don't know if it's helpful at all. But this is a book <laughs> that I just recently bought for myself and I actually read it um, every single morning because we're in such a challenging space and time with everything that's happening with the pandemic. We're all trying to stay above it and press on. So just having this kind of journal with this, it's a daily reminder affirmation of the fact that mistakes are going to happen and that you kind of just need to press on and keep moving forward. Outside of that, my head is just buried in the different scientific journal articles, which probably not too much fun to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> Rochelle, what was the name of that book? Did you say it? It's actually a journal. It's oh. an inner truth journal. It's called from the knock knock line. 
And so it says, you know, I totally got this. And then it goes through this thing of simply, it's what we always go through, right? Where you start off and you're saying, I totally got this. And then you question yourself, well, maybe I don't have it. Okay, I'm going to have some losses. Let's be honest about that. Okay, but from those losses, there could be some wins. And so I'll keep winning until tomorrow when I'll probably doubt myself again. And then I'll try again. (laughs) So it's like this kind of daily affirmation of saying, give it your best shot. And that's what, yeah. (laughs) Maintaining a positive attitude. I think it's always important to keep things going. On that note, how has COVID affected your perspective in working? COVID for me has definitely, I look at it as a time of a higher power, whichever you prefer, of telling us to be still. That's how I've looked at at COVID. It's definitely an unfortunate time, but I have to kind of look at the light at the end of the tunnel. So I've always looked at it as a time of just messaging someone is trying to tell you to be still. And so... Being here at home, I am enjoying every moment of it because it may not happen again that I can be at home every day with my family. And, you know, sometimes when you're going to work, you're going on campus and you're imagining a joke that your kids said or your spouse said or whatever family member, right? And now you can kind of hear the giggles in the background. So it's nice that you can kind of pop in and do that. But also in terms of work, it's a time to be still. And I find like I'm, I'm getting a lot done because I have that quiet time to kind of just push through things. But luckily, I'm also able to virtually connect with my colleagues and my peers um, so we can discuss things. We absolutely miss in-person and the importance of in-person, but it was a welcoming moment and lesson to learn. It's very good to have a balance. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else that's a burning question or any topic that you think we we should be um, addressing before we close out, Rochelle? I think you hit it all. Rochelle Williams-Bell is there. Thank you so much for spending time on The Human Subject. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful experience. The Human Subject is recorded in Portland, Oregon, edited by Kyle Curtis with supervising producer Amanda Brockman. I'm Eric Smith, this season's Clinical Research Jedi. On behalf of my co-host, Jeff Smith, thank you for listening. We're a new and growing podcast, so if you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review. And visit thehumansubject.com for previous episodes and to learn what we have coming up. If you have ideas on what we should be discussing or any feedback for the show, we'd love to hear from you by emailing us at podcast at thehumansubject.com. Thanks again.